Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. And always a great privilege to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon and to discuss some interesting ideas and fascinating insights that I think are relevant to us all. We're going to start out with the date today. Today is the 15th of the month of Cheshvan. We call it Mar Cheshvan because unlike Tishrei last month where there were so many beautiful, rich, magnificent, powerful Yomim Toivim, the month of Cheshvan, Cheshvan is bad. There's no Yomim Tovim. So that's why it gets the title Mar Cheshvan, the bitter month of Cheshvan, Cheshvan, because we don't have Yomim Tovim. Today being the 15th, actually the middle day of the month, is uh, a interesting day because for a, for a number of reasons. Well, we'll get to the Hebrew. Let's, let's actually look at the, the English date first. The 15th of Cheshvan today falls out on the 9th of November. And as we know, the 9th of November is the anniversary of Kristallnacht. It was on this night in the year 1938 that um, the terrible events of Kristallnacht took place. And, and in some places they went on the next night as well, the 10th of November. So it's 84 years since the great tragedy of Kristallnacht um, in which the paramilitary forces in Nazi Germany, um, the, which was the SS, the SA, Hitler Youth, and many German civilians that joined in to the frenzy, um, they uh, destroyed many, many thousands of um, Jewish-owned property, from shuls to businesses. Um, the, the pretext of it was the assassination of a German diplomat, Ernst von Roth, in um, he was, uh, he was, uh, he was uh, assassinated by a Jew by the name of Herschel Greenspan. He was 70 year old, uh, German born Jewish boy who was a refugee. Um, and, uh, he was in Paris at the time. So that was the pretext to these heinous attacks on the Jewish community. Jewish homes, hospitals, schools were destroyed by the rioters. 267 shuls throughout Germany, Austria and Sudetenland were destroyed. Over 7,000 businesses were damaged or destroyed. 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and, in, or in, and incarcerated in concentration camps. Most of them died. The British historian Martin Gilbert said that no event in the history of German Jews between 1933 and 1945 was so wi widely reported as it was happening. And the accounts from foreign journalists working in Germany drew um, the attention of the world. The Times of London wrote on the 11th of November 1938, no foreign propagandist bent upon blackening Germany before the world could outdo the tale of burnings and beatings of blackguardry assaults and def um, on defenseless and innocent people which disgraced that country yesterday. So as a result of Kristallnacht, the word got out as to the atrocities of the Nazis and the um, persecution of the innocent Jewish community. Uh, historians look at Kristallnacht 
as the prelude to the final solution and the the murder of six million Jews of the Holocaust. Um, Kristallnacht really is viewed as uh, a changing point, a turning point in terms of the Nazis' persecution of the Jews because up until Kristallnacht, um, it, it had been economic, political, social exclusion, but from Kristallnacht onwards, that changed to physical violence, um, incarceration, and murder. And it's, uh, as I mentioned, referred to the beginning of the Holocaust. So we see that um, it, uh, you know, it was the first stage, and step by step, step it ended up being with the annihilation of European Jewry. The, the famous historian Max Ryan says, Kristallnacht came and everything was changed. So it really was a major turning point um, in Europe for the Jews. In uh, November 1938, um, the, the uh, you know, they said that there was, there was the, uh, uh, foreshadowed the genocide that was to come. Uh, and in fact, we know that uh, Hermann Goering said in a conference just after Kristallnacht, he said, the Jewish problem will reach its solution if in any time soon we will be drawn into a war beyond our border. Then it is obvious that we will have to manage a final account with the Jews. So obviously that's, you know, the Nazi policy leading into the, the uh, beginning of World War II wasn't only the attack on Poland on the 1st of September 1939, which was a few months later, was also all part of this grand plan of not only the Nazis dominating Europe, but the Nazis destroying the Jews of Europe and wiping out the Jews of Europe. Um, so Kristallnacht also was instrumental in changing global public opinion. In the United States, it was this specific incident which came to symbolize the Nazis, Nazism, and was the reason why the Nazis then became, you know, associated with evil, became obvious and clear to the whole world what the Nazis were, were doing and what the Nazis were up to. So it's on this day, um, 84 years ago, that Kristallnacht took place. And, you know, we can just imagine it. So here in South Africa, we're very fortunate that Bli Iron Horror, um, we're not subjected to such horrors. And we have our beautiful shuls, we have our beautiful schools, we have our beautiful community. Um, imagine, you know, the, these our, our places that are so beloved to us being destroyed by these hordes, by these gangs of thugs and people being beaten in the streets and being arrested and being murdered. It's just absolutely unthinkable. Um, and with the thoughts of the Jews of the time is just uh, unimaginable. I actually want to share with you a story, uh, an interesting story about Kristallnacht, which I think makes it more personal for us. So we discussed the historical context, but it's a fascinating story that actually will bring to home the more personal side of Kristallnacht. So please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we're talking about today's anniversary. The 9th of November 1938 was um, the terrible, um, uh, tragic uh, events of what we call Kristallnacht. As we know, it means 
broken glass, crystal nut, because of all of the glass that was broken um, and uh, was laying around the streets of Germany and of Austria, of Sudetenland, which is today Czechoslovakia, as a result of the destruction of Jewish property. Um, so let's, uh, I'll, I'll, as I mentioned, uh, there's a story that I read in one of Rabbi Pesach Kron's books, The Spirit of the Magid. And uh, on page 117 of that book, he tells a, a very moving story about the power of the actions of a grandfather and how they could influence their grandchildren and how our legacy in this world is one that we should take very seriously and pass down to uh, the next generation, for they will look to us as we look to our ancestors. Our descendants will look to us um, for guidance in their lives and for a moral compass that they'll be searching for. This story is about a lady by the name of Noah Miller. Um, she came. She lives in Connecticut in the United States, and she discovered that she had a long-lost cousin who was living in, in Koblenz in Germany. And together with her husband, in June 2003, she arranged a trip to Germany and to meet this cousin. Um, and her cousin picked her up from the airport in Frankfurt, and they went to Koblenz, and they caught up all the messieurs and all the family stories. And they got to the topic of Kristallnacht, um, this day, November the 9th, 1938. And um, they discussed that their grandfather at the time was living in Leipzig, and he went to the great uh, community synagogue of Leipzig. And they said, why don't we go see what's left of it? Uh, um, so her cousin, uh, Mrs. Fulman, said that, you know, I've heard there is a memorial there. So we should go check it out. It was an over three-hour drive from where they were, but they decided, okay, they were going to go. And they went, and they looked, till they asked where it was, and they found it. Um, I think it is in the pre-Google Maps era. And uh, they found that there was nothing left of the shul. In other words, the walls and the, and the roof were gone. They saw that there were pews with wooden benches that were just all facing um, in a certain direction, obviously facing east, which is where our shuls, the shuls in Europe faced, because they're facing Mizrach, facing Eretz Israel. Um, and that it was in a very trendy neighborhood with uh, fancy shops and coffee shops all around. And then this open space with these with these benches. So people would just think that they're public benches. But really it was a memorial to the great Leipzig synagogue that was destroyed on Kristallnacht. And um, they walked into the place of these benches and she sat down, Mrs. Miller sat down, and she put her face in her hands and she just imagined what it was like for her grandfather who was there and what he must have been going through when these events took place and the unbelievable turmoil and dislocation and fear and panic and horror of the Jews living in Germany at that time. And she was almost dizzy from it. She just couldn't get her head around it. And she was thinking, how could such a thing happen? And how could the world allow for such a thing to happen? How could Hashem allow for such a thing to happen? And uh, she was very, very emotional about it. And she got up and she said to her cousin, let's let's go see if there are any books or any records of interest now that we're here in Leipzig. They went to a, a bookstore. They couldn't find any books. They went to a second, the largest bookstore, bookstore in Leipzig. And they found a book 
that almost jumped out at them. And it was the, the book's name was called Juden in Leipzig, the, the Jews of Leipzig. And there were a number of names that were mentioned, which were the names of their family. They recognized the names of their aunties. And they knew it was their aunties because they mentioned in this book both their married names and their maiden names. So it was unmistakably their family. And um, that's uh, also spoke in detail about one of the most prominent Rabonim that was in Leipzig. His name was Rabbi uh, Shlomo Kolibach, probably an ancestor of the famous musician Rabbi Shlomo Kolibach. Um, And then she came across... This letter. Now, as this book was on the shelf, she was looking through this, and it almost jumped out at her, this book. She saw, you know, Eugen of Leipzig. And she turned to, to this letter in the book. And the letter read was a letter that was written on the 25th of November, 1938. was written to the police headquarters of Leipzig. And it said the following. The undersigned Polish citizens allow ourselves the liberty to ask your permission to pray to pray and serve our God in the Tiktina Synagogue on 3 Richard Wagner Street as our synagogue, the Great Community Synagogue of Leipzig, has been closed. And she saw how incredible it was that these people, after having endured what they did, they still wanted to dive in. They still wanted to serve Hashem. They still wanted to do what Jews are supposed to be doing. And uh, she then looked at the names of those that signed the letter and she saw a name, somebody by the name of Edelman, somebody by the name of Bia, and then she saw the name S. Foman, which is the name of her grandfather. Her grandfather was one of the signatories on this letter that was written in this book. And she felt as if Hashem was talking to her and had given her the strength to realize that her grandfather didn't throw in the towel and didn't give up, and he kept on being a loyal, holy Jew, serving Hashem, and uh, doing his best to serve Hashem in the most impossible um, and difficult of circumstances imaginable. It gave a tremendous chizuk, tremendous strength and inspiration, and made her realize that our role, her grandfather, could go through such suffering and such difficulty and uncertainty. Um, and certainly she could uh, remain steadfast and strong and ensure that that message gets passed on to her children and her uh, descendants. So that's a beautiful, powerful story of somebody who went back to Germany and traced the um, steps of her grandfather and found that he, he despite the suffering of Kristallnacht, remained loyal and steadfast in his service of Hashem. Okay, so let's move on. As I mentioned today, the Hebrew date, so it's the 9th of November, the anniversary of Kristallnacht. It's also the 15th of um, the month of Cheshvan. It's a Yotzat of a family member of mine, so our learning together should be Le'idu Nishmas for the elevation of the soul of David Binyamin ben Elimoshe. Um, today is the Yotzat of the Chazanish, of the great and holy Avram Yeshaya Karalitz, the 15th of um, Cheshvan, 1953, 74, uh, is when the Chazanish uh, passed away. He died at the age of 74. So he was born in 1878. He died in 1953. Chazanish is a household name in the Torah world. Um, he, although he was born in uh, in Europe, he was born in the Grodno area, which is Belarus today in Eastern Europe. Um, the last 20 years of his life, he spent in Eretz Israel from 1933 to 1953, and became the um, most recognized halachic authority in the land of Israel for the Jewish community. 
Um, he was born um, in a, a small town called Kosava. Um, he was the son of Shmiriao Yosef Koralitz, who was the rabbi of the town. His mother's name was Rasha Leah, and uh, she was the daughter of Shalkat and Ellenbogen, who was a well-known figure at the time. Um, Abraham Yeshaya was born, he was the second of their family, and he had younger brothers as well. One of his younger brothers, Yitzchak, succeeded their father as the rabbi of Kosovo, um, and he and his wife and daughter were shot to death in their home by the Nazis in mid-1942. Um, they were killed by the Ansas group, and like many of the most of our ancestors, us Lithuanian Jews, our ancestors, we come from Lithuania, so over 90% of Lithuanian Jewry was murdered by the Ansatzgruppen, by the, um, by the Nazi death squads that were just behind the front lines. And there was the case with uh, the, the Chazanish's brother, Rav Yitzhak Karalitz, the rabbi of Kosovo. Um, his sister, he had a sister whose name was Pesha Miriam. She was married to Rav Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, the Stiplagod. And uh, Rabbi Kamnieski was very close to the Chazanesh, his brother-in-law, and he always referred to him as his mentor um, as long as he was alive. So they, the two of them, the, the Chazanesh and the Stipler, were really the Gedoyle Hador, the great leaders of our generation, and they worked very closely together. Um, the Chazanesh, he, he, was, um, he went to study, actually, interestingly enough, um, with Rav Chaim Soloveitchik for a short while in Brisk. But he didn't like, he didn't in, uh, enjoy the approach, and he, he left after a while. Uh, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, remember, had a very novel new approach to learning, and he uh, didn't uh, take a liking to it. And so he returned back to his town and continued to study with his father, who was the Av Beistin, the head of the Beistin. Um, he moved to Vilna in 1920 and became very close to Rav Chaim Ozekrzynski, and uh, Rav Chaim Oizer became his rebbe, became his mentor. And Rav Chaim Oizer, the great Rav Chaim Oizer, we've spoken about Rav Chaim Oizer before, he encouraged the Chazanish to go to Eretz Yisrael. And with the um, help and assistance of Rav Avraham Yitzchak Kuk, he was able to get to Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael, remember, was then under the British, man- British mandate, and he arrived in Eretz Yisrael in 1933. Um his house in Bnei Brak became the address of thousands who sought his advice and who sought his guidance. Um, he was such a, a, a tremendously empathetic person and such a great Talmud Chochem and a person who had great clarity and understanding of life and human beings and therefore was able to assist people not only in the realm of halacha but in the realm of uh, life decisions and guiding people when they came to critical junctures in their lives. The Chazanish and his wife were not blessed with any children. Um, and uh, and interestingly enough, he, he actually never received any official position as a rabbi um, of a community or of an organization or Rosh Hashiva. He wanted to remain humble and uh, spent his days and nights learning Torah. And that ensured that he was therefore so... Uh, um, that ensured that he was uh, uh, the, the great leader of the door of the generation. So in recognition of his Tremere, he became well known as the, the Gadla Dor, as the great leader of the generation, um, both within the religious world and in the secular Jewish world. In fact, when David Ben-Gurion became the prime minister, um, 
he and Yitzhak ben Svi, who was the uh, the second president of Israel, they went to see the Chazanish to discuss uh, different man- manners of the state and how things would run and how the religious community would uh, fit into the future building of the state of Israel. And um, there were certain issues that were actually um, that were actually uh, they had some disagreements on. And uh, the Chazan Ish uh, told the David Ben Gurion a marshal. A he, he described it with a metaphor. Uh, it comes from the Gemara in Sanhedrin Daflamid base. He said that when the, the the halacha is that if you've got two camels, one has a very heavy load and one doesn't have a load at all, and they come to a mountain path that only can fit one of them, so the one without the load needs to has to let the one with the load to go first. That's the halacha. So he said, we as the religious community have a load of a tradition um, of thousands of years, and therefore you need to let us um, make our choices for our community and uh, let us go first. And there was a, a famous marshal that he told Ben Gurion. Ben Gurion stated was quite moved by that and um, came to a compromise with the Chaznish, which is actually much of of the status quo and the understanding between the religious community and the secular community in Israel is a, a, the basis comes from that conversation, that meeting with the Chazanish and Ben Gurion. Uh, many people might think of and know the Chazanish um, from the fact that he um, is such a thing called the Chazanish Esrob. Um, you know, when we buy an Arab minimum sukkahs, so uh, some, sometimes you can see that the Merchants will offer you an esrog called the Chazan Ish Esrog, um, which is a, it's actually an interesting story because um, he obviously got his esrogim from a particular place. So when it comes to esrogim, when it comes to our um, the Arba Minim, so it's very important that we are able to um, that the esrogim are legitimate. In other words, they can't be grafted, they can't be murkav. Because a grafted estrog will be possible. You can't graft an estrog tree with a lemon tree. It's got to be a pure species of estrog for it to be kosher for the mitzvah. Chavnish had a source of pure estrog here. And one year he took the seeds of his estrog and he gave them to his Talmud, um, Rav Michal Yehuda Lefkowitz, who also became a great rov and a, and a great leader in the Jewish world. Um, and he told him to, to plant those seeds. He did so in the, uh, in their yard. In Lefkowitz's, uh, you know, garden, and an estrog tree grew, and every year the Chazanish would take an estrog from that tree, and so would um, the stipler. And Rav Lefkowitz allowed people to take cuttings from the tree and plant those trees, and they became orchards. So if you buy a Chazanish estrog today, it came from that those original seeds that the Chazanish gave to Rav Michal Yehuda Lefkowitz. So there we know for sure that this is the. Uh, correct species that is 100% estrog. The Chazanish was, uh, his, his halachic rulings, of course, had great weight and provided the framework for a lot of the halachas that we follow, certainly with regards to Eretz Yisrael, with regards to Shemitah, with regards to the many of the complicated halachas that were necessary after we returned to the state of Israel, Baruch Hashem. Um, he had a very strong view, the Chazanish, that if there was a ruling in the Shulchan Aruch, of Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Aruch, if he had a ruling, so um, it would be very even if later manuscripts were discovered that the um, that the Shulchan Aruch of Yosef Kara hadn't seen, they can't deviate us from the halach of the Shulchan Aruch, which is an interesting point, and it's a very strong point to know when one uh, coming to halachic rulings and halachic decisions. So it's very important to realize that 
um, even if there were later manuscripts, the Psak of the Shulchan Aruch remains what it is and is not moved, even though there might have been things that the Shulchan Aruch hadn't seen that we today are seeing. So that is a, an important principle that the Chazan Ish established that we stand by and follow very strongly today as well. Um, he was a prolific writer. The Chazanish wrote over 40 Sforim, in Hebrew, of course. Um, in 1911, he published his first work on Orachayim, on a part of the Shulchan Aruch, um, and he called it anonymously Chazan Ish. So Chazan means a vision. The word Ish, he got from the first letter, his name is Avraham Yeshaya. So if you take Aleph from Avraham and Yud and Shin from Yeshaya, it spells this. So Chazan Ish means the vision of, of a man of the Ish. So that's where he got the name from for his uh, Sefer. And it became one of the great halachic works that has, is referred to and is the basis of many of the halachas we follow today. Um, he was not only a great uh, uh, person in the realm of halacha, he also was a Kabbalist of Mekubal, but he was a Mekubal that was hidden. Nobody knew that he knew Kabbalah. Uh, Rav Aram Lev Steinman, who was the, the, the Gadlador until he passed away recently. So he said, he was a Talmud of Chazanish. He said that the Chazanish had vast knowledge of Kabbalah. And, uh, he had learned the, the entire Kabbalistic system as well. He wrote a sefer called Imuna Bitachon, which also was a great sefer, um, just, uh, which the translation is Faith and Trust, which is a basis, a, a wonderful description of the Imuna of understanding our faith and our trust in Hashem. And uh, there have been many biographies written about the Chazanish. Um, there's a famous biography called Per Ador. There's a famous biography called Maise Ish. And the Chazanish certainly was one of the great leaders of the Jewish world in the 20th century. And we remember him today on his yacht. So please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So let's move on now. Um, let's discuss, well maybe I'll, I'll just mention also very briefly that, um, that tomorrow, it's, it's interesting how, you know, it all um, me- melds in together. Hashem runs the world. So today is the Yotzah of Chazanesh. Tomorrow is actually the Yotzah, the 16th of Cheshvan of Rav Shach. Rav uh, Elazar Menachem Shach, um, who he was born in the year 1900. He died in the year 2001, 101 years old. And he, after the Chazanesh passed away, so the stipler, his brother-in-law, took over as the Gadol Ador, as the great uh, leader of the religious Jewish world in Eretz Israel. Um, when the stipler died, Rav Shach, who was the Rosh Hashanah was the one who took over until 2001. Um, he was the he led the Panovich Yeshiva for many decades, and uh, people also came from far and wide to hear his genius, his brilliant uh, talks, uh, shiurim, um, teachings on the Gemara, on the Talmud, as well as people flocked to him for his spiritual guidance. Um, he was also the uh, advisor, the spiritual head of Degel Torah, of the religious party of the uh, in, in the land of Israel. I, I was very privileged to meet him. I did meet him. I saw him a few times, but I actually met him once, and I spoke to him, and I told him my story, and he was quite intrigued by it, quite interested about it. Um, a, a person of a, a tremendous genius who had a great influence on the Jewish world. When he passed away, uh, which the anniversary is tomorrow, the 16th of Cheshvan, 
It's, 20, it's his 21st Yuletide tomorrow, he died in the year 2001. So there were over 100,000 people that were at his funeral. I was one of them. I, I was at his Levaya at his funeral. And he certainly uh, had a tremendous uh, influence and source of inspiration for the Jewish world um, throughout his lifetime. Rav Shach, whose Yuletide is tomorrow. So I wanted to mention a very important concept, a very important idea that um, – I think we we should take from this week's Torah reading. We're reading Pasha's Vayera. Pasha's Vayera, remember, starts out with the uh, Abraham has said his bris. He has a bris at 99 years old. He's struggling. Um, he's recovering from that bris, which is not a simple thing. And uh, he, Abraham and Sarah were dedicated to hospitality, to helping people, to assisting people. They they looked for travelers that were passing by and they welcomed them in and they gave them food and they taught them about Hashem and about understanding that there's a God, there's monotheism, that there's a single source of all blessing in this world, the creator of the universe. There's li- their lives were dedicated to that. And um, Hashem made it a very hot day, it's, uh, the Torah says. So Abraham wouldn't be bothered by having to entertain guests and he would be able to recover. But the Midrash says that Abraham's pain of not having guests and not doing chesed, not doing kindness, was greater than the pain of his bris. And so Hashem sent these three malachim, these three, um, these, they were actually angels in the forms of human beings. And uh, Abraham, is uh, he goes to great lengths to make them comfortable, to give them a very fancy meal, to, to, uh, to let them sit and rest from their difficult journey. And uh, the question is, why is it that um, this is the example of Abraham's chesed? We know that he and Sarah were dedicated to a life of chesed. Titen emes liyakov chesed Abraham. The Pasuk says that Hashem gave truthfulness to Jacob, but kindness to Abraham. So why is the example, the prototype, the, um, the uh, number one uh, illustration of the kindness of Abraham with regards to these malachim, these angels. It is a bit strange because the angels didn't really need it. They weren't real human beings. They were looked like human beings and they spoke like human beings, but they weren't human beings. So why is it that the, the prototype of chesed in the Torah, uh, from the great uh, example, model of chesed in the Torah, Abraham, is with the God's individuals that didn't need it? It's a great question, isn't it? Could have been many, many thousands of examples of Abraham's life. And the answer is so beautiful. And that is because it's come, the Torah is coming to tell us that even though they didn't need the chesed, that is, the, the point is that Abraham moved himself and he pushed himself past his selfish mindset, which is the natural state of everybody. And he broke through that selfishness and even chesed that was done to people that didn't need it. That's not the point. That's not the issue. The point is we pushing ourselves and pushing past our natural state of selfishness and assisting others, even if they don't need that chesed, is what Hashem is wanting. It's about our the work that we're doing ourselves. It's not about the final result and the bottom line. That's up to Hashem. But the real ikka, the real focus of chesed, is we doing the work. And pushing ourselves past that selfish mindset that we all have, just worrying about ourselves and our family and our immediate world, 
But Hashem wants us to see beyond ourselves and to apply ourselves in the assistance of others beyond ourselves. So that's why the example chosen by Hashem to illustrate Abraham's tremendous chesed was specifically an example where the recipients were not in great need. It looked like they needed it, but they didn't really. In the, in the grand scheme of things, they didn't need it. They were malachim. But that doesn't matter. The chesed is about the giver and not the receiver. Obviously, the receiver needs to receive what they receive, of course. But the point that the Torah is making is chesed is about us doing the work and pushing past ourselves and breaking through into this world of kindness. And we see that it's an amazing thing. We see that that the, this Pasha illustrates Abraham and contrasts Abraham with Sodom. Sodom was that very evil place in which um, in which they they did not practice any kindness, where they were very selfish and very very um, and uh, and very stingy, and they would not welcome any strangers, and they actually were very cruel in Sodom, and that's why they were destroyed. There's an interesting Ramban on this week's parsha, but the Ramban says that the reason why Sodom was it was so bad because Hashem gave them, uh, the Ramah said, was Gan Hashem, it was like a beautiful garden, like Gan Eden. Um, the fertile territory of storm was the best in the world, in, certainly the best in Eretzor, but the best in the world. And the Ramah says, Yad Ani um, Lo Hechziku, he quotes the Pasuk from Yechezkel, that the crime of storm, that even though Hashem gave them this prosperity and gave them this beautiful fertile land, and that's why people went there, because it had such a fertile soil, they didn't help those less fortunate than themselves. They were selfish, and they took it on for themselves. As it says, um, that they were uh, focused on their their own uh, benefits and their own um, and their own wealth, and they weren't prepared to to help others. And it says, "Mitnei shebavur toiva nidgau that." Hashem blessed them with prosperity and with wealth. And because of the good that Hashem gave them, they became arrogant. And they didn't recognize the source of their, of their wealth and the source from where their blessing came. And instead they became arrogant. They thought it was me and I did this and it's mine and I have no need and I have no requirement to share it with anybody else. This is what, what I have. This is for me. That was their attitude and that was their mindset. And that's why Storm was destroyed. And that's unlike Abra- uh, like Abraham. You know, it says very interestingly in the Mishnah in Perikavos, in Perikai Mishnah Yud Gimel, it says, Yesh um, zu midastoim. It's talking about a person who says, Sheli, Sheli, Veshelach, Shelach. What is mine is mine, and what is yours is yours. So some say that's midastom. When a person says, Okay, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. In other words, there's no sharing, there's no mixing, there's no helping each other. There's no supporting others that need other things. Um, the morale actually says that people um, who don't want to take from others, actually, it's because they don't want to give to others either. Um, so the, the mindset of storm is that whatever I have is mine, and I have no obligation at all to to share it with others, to help others less fortunate than myself. Shebavur toivan isgau, says the Ramban, because of the good Hashem gave them, they became more selfish and they became more arrogant. And that was a unacceptable behavior in Hashem's eyes. That's something that is intolerable for Hashem. Certainly in Eretz Yisrael, the Ramban says, because Kisham Hechel Hashem, in Eretz Yisrael, that's where the Hechel of Hashem is. That's where Hashem's palace is. That's where the base of Mikdash is. So such behavior, it cannot 
be uh, allowed and tolerated in Eretz Yisrael. And it's a, it's a very powerful message for all of us that we should realize that our, our situation and our lives are whatever we have and we all are surrounded with abundant blessings in so many areas of our lives, whether it's our physical bodies or whether it's our parnosa, our financial situation, or whether it's our families around us. And we are obligated to realize that all we have is by the grace of God. Hashem has blessed us. And it's our obligation to appreciate that and to behave accordingly and to share with others. And sharing doesn't only mean money and giving tzedakah. We can share our time. We can share our emotions and be empathetic to others. We can share our knowledge. We can give a smile and share goodwill with others. All of these things are part of the mindset of what a Jew should have. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we're discussing this middah, this quality, this characteristic that we should all have as Jews, being descendants of Avram Avinu and Sarah Imeno. And that is this mindset and this appreciation for what we have in our lives. And that is a context within which we deal with those around us and we deal with the choices that we make. That's midah storm, the midah, the characteristic, the behavior of the people of storm was that Although Hashem blessed them with great opulence and great wealth, that wealth only became a source of arrogance for them. And it turned them into selfish and self-centered narcissistic individuals. As the Ramban says, As a result of the goodness that Hashem gave them, they became more arrogant. And sometimes we see it. Sometimes we see people are blessed with certain things and it makes them arrogant and they think they're on a on a level above everybody else, and they're not willing to share the the blessings that Hashem has given them. The mindset of Avram Avinu was that whatever I have, I have it as a result of Hashem's blessings. The life that I live, the breath that I breathe, the opportunities that I have, I am given, the ability to make decisions and to earn a living and to earn money and to be successful and to do whatever we do, whatever my, our strengths are, we all have strengths. They're not only if we're wealthy, that we have that with, with which to share with others. Um, we all have abilities and strengths and opportunities to help others, to uplift others, to share with others, to um, benefit others. And that should be our attitude and mindset in life. We should resist the middle of storm um, of people that are arrogant and that are selfish and that are uh, self-centered. And we should embrace the attitude of Abraham. And we should appreciate the blessings, see those blessings in our life, see what Hashem has given us. It's not due to us. We're not entitled to anything, and we earn very little of our keep. And Hashem nonetheless has patience with us and blesses us in so many dramatic ways. And so it's our duty and responsibility and obligation as Jews in the world to see the blessings we have and to do the best we can to share them as much as possible, of course, within reason and within balance, but have an attitude of giving and of helping and of sharing 
other, with others, first and foremost in, in the home. Charity begins at home. Our love and our care and our empathy and our focus needs to be with our spouse, it needs to be with our children, it needs to be with our parents. And then we spread that to our community and then we spread that to the entire world following in the footsteps and in the example of Avram Avinu and Sarah Imeno. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.